eagle flies high, way up in the sky. It sees above the human eye, a different perspective, a broader directive. In doing so, it becomes more effective. Welcome to The Legal Eagle, a podcast where I examine aspects of the law that I'm passionate about. I'm your host, Sarah Mae Thomas, and my aim is to have conversations that will empower both professionals and the everyday person on the street. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of The Legal Eagle. I'm joined in today's episode with the one and only Ian Kennedy, who I had the pleasure of meeting here in Singapore some two years ago when he was a speaker at the Family Law Conference here in Marina Bay Sands. Now, Ian Kennedy is a founder and senior partner of Kennedy Partners. As a forefront leader in the development of family law, Ian runs a highly regarded national and international family law practice, primarily in major financial cases and difficult multi-jurisdictional matters. Ian has been recognized in Doyle's Guide to the Australian Legal Profession as preeminent in Victoria, and has been referred to as Australia's best in cross-border matters. In 2004, Ian was appointed a member of the Order of Australia for his services to the law. His practice encompasses every aspect of family law, including trial and appellate work. Ian has also spoken on many family law and related issues at conferences and seminars all over Australia and the territories, and in more than 20 countries around the world, So welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be able to join you. It's wonderful. Technology enable us to get together face to face. Exactly. (laughs) So Ian, how have you been in, you know, since the second lockdown in Melbourne? How's it been there? Well, it's certainly been a bit challenging in the sense that uh, part of the lockdown requirements is that offices have to be closed and we can't work on site. So Mm. that uh, we certainly lose the collegiality of the day-to-day interaction of all of the practitioners within the firm. But uh, operating remotely has proved to be not as difficult as I would have thought it would have been, being from a previous generation. And uh, it seems to be going really quite well, despite the odd frustration. The courts are continuing to operate on uh, various electronic uh, platforms, the productivity from everyone has been excellent because there's nothing much else you can do. <laughs> you can't travel beyond yes. five kilometres from your home and then only for very specific purposes like uh, shopping, uh, food shopping and uh, seeking medical treatment. So that uh, everyone's sort of chained to their screens and uh, working away and that makes the time go very quickly. Yes, wonderful. And have you found that, was it a bit of an adjustment with court hearings and mentions on Zoom and on telecommunicating? No, it's not, not as much as I expected it to, to, to be. But mm. uh, really, I guess I've done a lot of audiovisual stuff over my career anyway, so one slips into that fairly easily. It's the only area where it does create a problem is if uh, you're running a trial and you're cross-examining because you can't see everyone else in the court and uh, you don't have direct contact with the witness you're cross-examining. And, of course, it's a bit complicated in uh, producing uh, documents and tendering those and asking witnesses to look at them because we're not quite geared up for a full electronic trial yet. But I think that's going to be on the way and uh, that's the not-too-distant future. We'll all be doing that. Yes. 
Yeah, I think it's really helped. You know, it's bridged a lot of, I mean, I've wasted a lot of time in court waiting to hear the judge. And yesterday I was in a court mention and it only took me, what, two minutes to wait into the waiting room. And then I was sitting and doing my work and then I got called for my mention. So it was very productive and I wasted no time going to court and waiting around. So I thought that was, it's been good. That, that is an unexpected but very welcome advantage. And yes. certainly the Australian courts are going to build on that and we'll, we'll see more and more of that now yes. that everyone's had the experience of it. Yes. So Ian, I've just started my own law firm about a, a year ago and I know you run a very successful practice, but I'm interested to know what has your legal journey been like and how did you get into family law? Well, I fell into family law, really, I think is the easiest way mm. to put it. And legal journeys tend to be long and uh, tortuous for many people. <laughs> yes. Although, interestingly, I think more in more recent times, uh, people tend to go straight into a specialty area and stick with it throughout their lives. I had the great advantage of starting life as an industrial advocate on the national scene, working for employers, but that involved a great deal of national travel. And when I had a young family, I thought, well, I can't keep doing that. So I joined a private law firm and then started this rather strange career in white-collar crime inadvertently mm. because a client of mine was the first person to be under the new criminal sanctions provisions of what was then the Australian Corporations Law, and we had a stunning success. So every uh, white-collar criminal in Melbourne then wanted me to act for them. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that occupied me for a while and also general practice in um, various areas with a little bit of matrimonial causes. But then in 1975, the Australian uh, Parliament legislated the Family Law Act, which was due to come into operation and did in January 1976. And that time I was doing a bit of part-time teaching at the Leo Cusson Institute, which was the practical legal training program for graduates to prepare them for admission to practice. And uh, the subject I was teaching at the time, which was crime, surprisingly enough, didn't fit into my timetable. And I said, look, I need the money. I've got a young family. Could you give me something else to do? Mm. And uh, they said, well, we've got this new family court thing starting next year. Would you like to teach that? I, said, I don't know anything about it. They said, wow. all right. Nobody else does either. Yes. So I was on a committee with uh, two senior matrimonial causes barristers to design and run the course. And wow. uh, both of those barristers were then appointed as family court judges. So that left me <laughs> alone <laughs> to uh, design uh, and uh, prepare and uh, conduct the course from the beginning. And it kind of took me over from there, really, Wonderful. one way or another. And eventually it became uh, all that I did. Amazing. I recently interviewed Dinah Bryant, and she was talking about how she was, I think, in Perth in 1975, and she just kind of fell into, you know, that it was a new area. I mean, it was basically new law, and every time you were going to court, you were making new law. And I think it sounded like a very interesting time to be practicing family law in Australia. It was a fantastic time to be practicing, and because everyone was learning together, including yes. the judges. Yes, so yes. Uh, every case in 1976 that we did, it was a collaborative effort between wow. the bench and the bar to try to work out what on earth we were doing and uh, where we should be going. 
And it also provided an opportunity to break down the barrier between bench and bar and between bar and uh, solicitors. And um, in 1977, we founded the Family Lawyers Association of Victoria, uh, which I became the foundation president. And uh, that the members were barristers, solicitors, judges, and we all got together at least once a month for to for a meal and uh, to learn from each other. And wow. uh, that has continued in one form or another. It Amazing. created great problems with the bar who didn't like the idea of uh, barristers mixing with solicitors. Mm. Uh, but as the judges were involved, there was nothing much they could do about it. Yeah. <laughs> and that reality, I think, that started then has continued throughout the ensuing 45 years or so. Wonderful. That's amazing, Ian. Ian, you're highly recognised by your peers for your contributions in Australia on international family law. You've been, you know, served as president, chair of so many different organisations. What motivates you to lead, share and mentor those around you? Oh, what a good question. Something I've never really thought deeply about. I think at one level, a love of teaching and learning and the best way to learn is to teach because it yes. really makes you think about what the nuts and bolts and mechanics are and what you can usefully convey to people that's going to help them in their day-to-day professional lives. On the mentoring side, we are a profession and that carries with it a responsibility to the community and to the profession itself to try to achieve the highest practical standards that we can. And continuing education is extraordinarily important to that. And mentoring within one's firm is a major part of that, to Mm -hmm. make sure that as a firm, we keep up the highest standards that we can and perform the best level and provide the services that people are entitled to expect from us with an appropriate level of integrity and professional ability. So I think that they're important things. In terms of mentoring, in a law firm, you can't keep on everyone who ever works for you. And over the years, I've had many people uh, who I have under my wing and uh, mentored who've gone out into the broader profession, either to the bar or to the bench, or to found their own firms or to join other firms. And it gives me an enormous amount of pleasure to see them succeeding and building on the basis that I hope we were able to provide for them within our firm. uh, A few years ago, I was um, fortunate enough to be awarded the uh, Law Council of Australia President's Medal. And uh, we had a little celebration. We invited all our previous uh, chickens to come home and and join in the celebration. It was just a fantastic experience and it really made it worthwhile from my point of view uh, that we were able to contribute. I think also an interesting factor is that family law is almost unique, I think, in its collegiality and its willingness to share knowledge. Most yes. other areas of law fairly closely guard their professional and trade secrets. And when they yes. people do speak at seminars, they're not giving a great deal away. Yes. In family law, it's all put on the table and everyone's very, very willing to share their experiences, their knowledge, their ideas. And that, I think, 
is very much a part of that uh, whole impetus for wanting to be involved in you know, continuing education and in, in mentorship and being part of that broad family law family yes. that uh, I think makes such a, a huge contribution. And wherever you look in the world, that is the case. Yes. But whichever jurisdiction you happen to be in, that is a very common aspect of the family law jurisdiction. It certainly is the case here in Singapore as well. I think it's just, it's a very approachable, it's a, you know, if I have any issues or concern about a case and I just want to bounce ideas off, just call either, you know, my mentors or fellow colleagues, and then they're more than happy to share, whether it's precedence or whether it's like, oh, I had this case and this is what I did. And, and it's, it's, it's very nice. It's very nice yep. to have that. And, and I can attest to that from my own experiences with Singapore. <laughs> so it, it is a very good <laughs> yes. legal environment there. So Ian, you were also a former Australian correspondent for international family law. Was there any particular paper or publication that you wrote that you were very passionate about or stood out from the rest for you? I don't know that I've put my finger on a paper or article. Um, I've had a, a law student uh, recently trying to catalogue and electronically file. Wow. Must be a lot. Uh, somewhere between three and 400 of wow. them from <laughs> many, many jurisdictions, as you said, I think the probably spoken at uh, conferences and seminars in the, now up to about 25 different countries. Wow. But I think the ones that make the most impression from my point of view are those that are related to law reform or the expansion of the knowledge from one jurisdiction to another. There were a series of papers I gave in the United Kingdom that related to a whole range of uh, law reform issues over the years, and they were uh, conferences I spoke at for the English judiciary, the profession, things like uh, one was called, as I, if I can think about it, with this contract I the wed, and that was to do with binding financial agreements and whether the Australian experience with them and the fact that, of course, England has still not got legal sanction for prenuptial or other agreements to be binding, although after the Radmarker case there may carry very, very considerable weight and in effect be followed by the court. Um, I also did another one on uh, transparency in the family courts, which was to do with open courts and the anonymised reporting of all cases to do away with the myth that family law courts operate in secret and terrible things happen and judges <laughs> do irresponsible things that endanger yes. children. And uh, talking about the Australian system where every case is reported but anonymised, anyone can walk into a court, not at the moment because of COVID, but uh, yes. normally, and observe what's going on. Similarly, on de facto uh, rights to uh, property um, under Australian law, as you know, uh, de facto couples of whatever their gender are treated exactly the same as married couples, yes. both for property and parenting reasons. But in the UK, cohabitees have no property rights. Mm. And that creates appalling injustice, and it's uh, on the law reform agenda. And one that has actually made a bit of progress was one on the uh, UK white paper on uh, divorce law reform, which seemed to be based in 
contradictory 19th century Judeo-Christian biblical concepts. And I wrote a paper on that called White Paper or White Elephant. <laughs> I like that. Just now, 25 years later, England is finally making, moving towards implementing some reforms in the divorce area. Apart from that, I think other ones that might come to mind is the one I did on the international jurisdictional supermarket, uh, that mm. is forum shopping, which yes, was... Uh, that's fascinating, unique. actually. Yeah. One that I really like was one uh, called Heaven, Hell and Purgatory, which was <laughs> marriage, uh, divorce and so on, um, which I did in Shanghai, of all places. Wow. Um, and um, one on, in uh, New Delhi on surrogacy law. So, uh, and still is a big issue there yeah. and uh, all around the world. So out of that three or four hundred, you could pick many. Yes. But uh, those ones that are dealing with real-life practical issues, yes. the need for law reform are the ones that I'm proudest of in many respects, I suppose. And would you say, I mean, in Singapore definitely is an issue because we've got so many international marriages here. So I often see people, you know, one, the husband might be from Mexico, the wife might be from China, and they've made Singapore their home you know, for three years, and then they, they want to relocate to another country. Do you often see that in Australia as much? Yes, of course. I mean, Australia mm. is a very, very multicultural society which is built on immigration, mm. uh, so that uh, we have many real uh, hodgepodge of uh, communities within our community. And uh, this is an issue that arises endlessly, really. Um, so you've not only got the immigrant community, but you've also got the transient community, people who are in Australia to study or for employment purposes, so that uh, it comes up on a very regular basis. Yes. The important aspect of that is to, for them to get, of course, get advice early, not just about Australian law, but about the law of whichever other jurisdiction or jurisdictions they may be involved in. And uh, often you're covering a whole range of jurisdictions. And uh, you would see that very much in Singapore, that uh, not only will there be their jurisdictions of origin, of course it may be that an Australian has met and married someone from England or the US or elsewhere in Singapore and they have lived there, but they have connections and assets and yes. involvements in maybe several other jurisdictions. Yes. The important bit is to get advice from Singapore, to get advice from Australia, if there are other jurisdictions, to get some input from lawyers there so you can make an informed decision about what jurisdiction is going to be the most suitable for the client and their interests and where they're going to get the, the best outcomes in terms of what it is they might want to achieve. Just on that topic, Ian, I remember your talk in Singapore was on relocation. And so that was a very, very fascinating talk that you gave. It's uh, complete with the cartoons. And <laughs> I remember the, the graphics that stood out for me in your PowerPoint. It was very entertaining, but very insightful as well, because you talked a lot about this, topic of relocation and, and how it impacts the child. 
Do you have any thoughts on re child relocation or cases? You know, just concepts that you'd, you'd like to share with listeners. Well, Sarah, mate, they're very fact-specific, obviously. Yes. And in the end, relocation ultimately does turn on the best interests of the child. But what tends to happen, of course, when relationships break down is that it's a natural reaction for people, particularly mothers with children, to go back to their home jurisdiction where they have support yes. uh, without formal approval of their partner or the court. So we've mm -hmm. ended up, end up with a Hague Convention application and that uh, creates a major problem because the likelihood is that there will be a return. But then again, if there's a very proper reason for relocating, on return, there will be a hearing of the relocation application and no doubt appeals on both the Hague and the relocation matters. And what tends to happen, and I don't know what the answer to this is, that uh, the child may well be enabled to go back to the jurisdiction where the mother wants to be, but in the meantime, this whole process has taken maybe two or three years of their lives and you've had this international ping-pong between yeah. countries and courts, which is devastating for the children and for their parents. Yeah. Uh, the, I think the message there is that there is a genuine basis for relocation. It, to do it properly and to make an application to the court of the, that uh, is the jurisdiction of habitual residence at the time, and uh, rather than uh, in, abducting them, you know, rather you know, removing them. Using self-help, yeah. because I, I think people don't see themselves as normally as abducting. They just think I'm going home to yes. my family, where I where yeah. will I will have support, and I have no support here in this yeah. uh, jurisdiction to which neither of us may have a permanent connection. And I know that Australia has adopted this rebuttable presumption of shared parental responsibility. Does this make it hard for you know parenting orders and relocation more complex because of this presumption? It's only a presumption and it is, as you say, rebuttable and it's rebuttable based on the best interests of the child. The concept is that it's often misunderstood. It doesn't mean that parents physically share the equally the okay. care of the children. It means that each of them retains the obligation rather than the right to share in the decision-making about children, such as where they should live, what sort of education they should have, with uh, major medical issues, yes. uh, perhaps yes. religious education, that sort of thing. So uh, it there is a lot of community confusion about it in a way, but in the end it distills down to an analysis of what is the best in, in the best interest of the child if the parents can share that uh, decision-making responsibility, then they should do so. In some cases they can't, they're so conflicted, and one of them might be given responsibility for all major decisions, or for specific ones. Like if there's a dispute over education, then perhaps one parent might be given that responsibility, and be allocated between them appropriately. And, in, um, terms, in terms of um, complicating relocation, it, it doesn't really do that because the principles are the same either way. You've got to balance up what is in the best interest of the child. Yeah. The Australian law and part of that shared parental responsibility 
is that a child has a right to spend time with each parent and to spend meaningful time and and have each parent involved in each stage of their lives as far as possible. Their leisure time, their leisure activities, their sporting activities, their school life. But if that can't be done, then you've got to find other ways to deal with it. And if there's an international relocation, obviously being involved on a physical day-to-day basis in their lives is not going to be possible. So you then have to look at what can be done to maintain and promote the relationship between parent and child by regular electronic contact, by regular physical contact on holiday periods and that sort of option. It's never a happy situation. Someone's going to feel as though they miss out, but all you can do is balance it up as best you can and try and work out what is best for the child. And I recently interviewed someone in Western Australia, and it seems like the laws is different in Western Australia compared to the rest of Australia. Is it is that the case, or no? The is family it, law is basically the same. The only difference is that uh, Western Australia has its own uh, family court as a state-based court, whereas the rest of Australia is under the general federal jurisdiction of the Family Court of Australia and the Federal Circuit Court. But the fundamental law relating to children and to financial matters is is, is the same under the Family Law Act. Okay. There's some minor changes, so you just need to be a little bit careful in in Western Australia. And in terms of de facto relationships, I think that's somewhat different there also. I see. So, Ian, you know, you've done so many cases over the course of your career. Has there been one case that has stood out for you? No, I don't think there have been cases that have stood out. I've had some interesting experiences, but I think um, one of the major ones is a case of uh, Scorn, which ran for about 15 years in the family court. Oh, my goodness. uh, The parties managed to rack up legal costs of around $30 million. The, I was brought in to try to get it under control, and to, uh, and we did that eventually. But it sort of went to the High Court of Australia twice. It was, I think, multitudinous hearings. The wife was the catalyst for this. I think, from memory, she over the course of that period, she had seventeen lawyers who were on the record at various times, and a number of other lawyers she had consulted in all mm-hmm. states the country. So she came from a, an Italian family that had the surname Corleone. So it, it might indicate that uh, it was not an easy situation to deal with, but really quite fascinating. Mm. Another case I had was uh, one involving family trusts where the uh, husband was actually a lawyer who was uh, an internationally recognised expert on trust law, and he got very offended when we uh, beat him in the High Court. Oh, wow. And this, the assets of the trusts that he thought were absolutely secure. Oh, wow. His, uh, client, the wife, and his response to that was to cash up a large proportion of the assets and with the intention of if the wife didn't accept an offer he made of destroying the cash. And uh, we got wind of this and managed to uh, 
recover four four and a half million in cash and um, get it to our office on a very hot Sunday in the middle of the bushfire season, sitting wow. there counting all of this money. Um, so uh, it was incredible. Uh, then we had an interesting problem that we thought, okay, we better put it in the bank where it will be safe. Yes. So we walked across the road, wheeled it across the road to the bank, and they all turned white and said, "No, no, we're a bank. We can't take cash. Just <laughs> take it back again." The security guard. <laughs> Why can't they take cash? I mean, it's a bank, well, but maybe not that much. <laughs> not much of cash. Amount of money they had to call in security guards. Yeah. To uh, protect it. Oh my goodness! Uh, nothing else. Uh, uh, you'd never know what's going to happen next. In terms yes, of <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? But Ian, I often wonder about these cases that drag on for fifteen years in court, and you know, people spend millions of dollars in legal fees. What do you think? Is it because people are so angry and bitter that yes. they just can't let go? Yes, mm. and in this case. Husband perfectly reasonable. He made a you know, totally reasonable offer at the outset, a very generous offer. But the wife was just not prepared to let go of it. She was convinced that there were trillions of dollars stashed mm. all around the world. It was an international uh, family, and the husband by then was living in Hong Kong, and she was absolutely convinced that he was a liar, a fraud, a cheat, a cat, and a bounder. And uh, yeah. going to find out where all the ill-gotten gains were. <laughs> yes, yes. Exist, but, wow. And in the end, she got uh, a very a reasonable settlement, but in terms of even the known identified assets, and that was all there was, much less than she would have got had she resolved it at the outset, which would easily have been done. Yeah. And in net terms, after all of her expenditure, she probably ended up burned out of pocket. How sad. And that's no reflection on the court system that did everything it could. Mm. Uh, but uh, if you have someone who appeals everything, every interim hearing, every yes. interlocutory step, uh, every judgment, then it just goes mm. on and on. Ian, what is your advice to family lawyers, you know, maybe more junior family lawyers who are faced with such clients, you know, and these clients are bitter, they're angry, they're, they're holding on to grudges, and they just want to file interim applications left, right, center, appeal every decision. And, and I mean, I, as a junior lawyer, had a few clients where they were convinced that monies were stashed and billion, millions were stashed when it didn't exist, and then you have to go through the whole interlocutory and discovery and all of that. How do you manage that client? How do you uh, knock with, sense into them? With great patience and fortitude, I think, because yes. you can't stop them doing it. They have the right yes. to do that. But you've got to balance that against the fact that we are officers of the court and we have an obligation Absolutely. to the court not to utilise its resources unnecessarily and to be frank and honest and ensure that our clients are. But if someone has that genuine delusion, we can't. So, well, we can say that I'm not prepared to act for you, if that's what you want to do, but they are entitled to representation, and it's it's a balancing act, but uh, you do the best you can with it. Yeah. And uh, some, But sometimes they're just uncontrolled. In fact, on Monday this week, I was dealing with an application by a wife who was quite, quite convinced that there must be 
lots of money tucked away somewhere, and uh, she made an application falling into over 90 categories, dating back 15 years or oh, more, amounted to maybe a hundred and something thousand pages of documents oh. had been successful, uh, but she wasn't. It was totally irrelevant that she wanted every piece of paper as a glorified fishing expedition to see if she could find something somewhere that would show that uh, he wasn't being honest. So it's very frustrating, that sort of thing. But there's no yeah. doubt that are parties who are less than frank and who do hide assets. And sometimes you just can't find them. You know they're there, but particularly in the, if, if they're offshore assets, there's no way of getting at them other than by sheer chance. I had a case many years ago where we were convinced that uh, there were very substantial offshore assets, but uh, no evidence of that. And bizarrely, the day before the trial was due to start, a letter arrived at the former matrimonial home from a Swiss bank making reference to this account that the husband had not disclosed. Wow. Uh, we uh, produced to him at court in the morning, and uh, it, the matter settled very rapidly. <laughs> That's amazing. And, and the timing, crazy. the timing Just of that. Happenstance. Yep. And uh, the bank had never sent anything to that address before. How it happened, who knows? It was probably a bank error, and the husband hadn't lived there for 10 years or so. Divine intervention. <laughs> and it Sometimes. settled very quickly. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Wow. So good. So Ian, just, just we're going to wrap up, but I just have a question about COVID and how you see, do you see any changes in the development of family law because of this COVID outbreak? You know, the enforceability of access orders when parents are living in different states. Do you That's, think? That is creating some problems. The family court has established a special COVID list to okay. deal with those sorts of cases with priority. And for most states, uh, movement is an exception if uh, movement between states is uh, under a court order. But I think the, the big differences are the, the practice aspects that we've touched on before. Yes. And the Australian Family Law Courts, and it's the Family Court of Australia and the Federal Circuit Court, have responded very well and very rapidly to the COVID situation. There, with virtual hearings, as we've talked about, and also now they've uh, established a system of national availability of judicial offices, so that even if you're, say, in Queensland, you may find that a judge in South Australia has some spare time and they will hear your case. Oh, wow. Um, you can do it electronically. Um, so, yeah, so that uh, they're utilising their resources in a very creative and constructive way, mm. also ramped up electronic filing of everything because you can't enter the, the court registry to file anything, and looking towards electronic court books, and I think that's going to become a feature for the future. Everything will be done electronically as soon as the, uh, the hardware, the software is pretty well available, and since the hardware is available in the courts to be able to, to, do, to do that. So, and as we said, just that sheer convenience of being able to do the more routine mentions and short hearings and hearings on the papers remotely and is a great advantage and I think that will continue also. 
Yes, that's definitely been the silver lining, I think, for us lawyers in this pandemic, for efficiency and bridging so many gaps globally as well. I mean, the fact that judges in a different state can hear Victorian cases, I think that's amazing. Yep, yes. And international cases have always been unable to be done on video link and uh, just for your entertainment because you've seen the cartoons. Uh, yes. I was getting that evidence in the case in London. Um, the parties were in president court, but the judge and both opposing QCs were friends of mine. And I gave the evidence, and uh, at the end of it, the judge said, uh, Mr. X, uh, any further questions for Mr. Kennedy? It's rather late at night in Melbourne. He probably needs to get to bed. And uh, one of my colleagues sort of went forward and said, uh, Mr. Kennedy, no cartoons? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, they all knew what he was talking about. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, good. So just just a very last question. Do you have any advice, Ian, for law students or younger lawyers about to start their legal career? Yes, I do. And I think one of the, and I touched on this earlier, one of the real difficulties at the moment is that previously it was possible to get a broad general experience in law firms and to have a, a working knowledge of a whole range of uh, other areas of law. And the feature of family law, of course, is that at one point or another, it brings in almost every other area of law you can think of. Yes. If you're grown up solely within a family law environment, you're not aware of that. You're not really attuned to the nuances of other areas. So the best advice really is to get as much experience as you can uh, before specialising. I know that's difficult these days, but there is the opportunity even to spend a year or so with a general practice firm or a large firm where you can be rotated around departments. It gives you a huge advantage yes. uh, when you come to practice in the family jurisdiction. That's good advice, Ian. I think that's great advice. I started off in personal injury, and then I went and represented the bad guys in Singapore, the insurance companies. So I definitely, and, and then obviously because it was a bigger firm, they gave me, you know, kind of other types of shipping and debt recovery, but it just exposes you to so much more, so many new ideas that you can kind of have that perspective when you're doing your family law cases. Yeah. It does it. Yes. Yes. So good, Ian. Thank you so much for sharing about what's happening in Melbourne and about your very interesting cases. It's been great having a chat over Zoom. And I look forward to seeing you here in Singapore at some stage. As soon as we can travel, I yes. will be there. <laughs> in the meantime, I've enjoyed it very much, and thank you so much for having me. All right, Ian. I'll, for the listeners, I'll put Ian's website in the show notes, and uh, you can. I think listeners can just contact you on your website if they wanted to reach out, Ian. Is that the best way? Yes. Yep. Yes. And my direct email is there if they wish it. Okay, great. Thanks, Ian. Have a good evening. Bye-bye.